Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pressure. Changes in pressure can impact us significantly. For example, changes in pressure are noticed by your grandmother, and that's why her sore shoulder can tell you it's going to rain later on in the afternoon, right? Changes in pressure in the wintertime help to explain why heart attacks go up an astounding 50% compared to other times of the year. And changes in pressure internally in the life of somebody, especially if the pressure rises, I'll tell you what, it'll, it'll cause a person to do things they've never seen before. Changes in pressure impact us significantly. I remember when uh, Carol and I were taking this trip. I don't know if you've ever uh, taken a trip to the Middle East, uh, but we were taking this trip to the Middle East, the Palestinian region, along with this other couple that we are with. And we're going out on an expedition to kind of take a look at this uh, you know, mission organization that was there reaching you know, Muslim teenagers. And so, to be honest with you, I mean, the biggest thing I've ever done outside the United States was going to Canada. You know, so this was a pretty huge thing for me to go into Palestine, uh, you know, a Muslim region there in the Middle East. And so all we knew that when we were landing, we were going to get our bags, we were supposed to meet this woman by the name of Rachel. We didn't know what she looked like, how old or young she was. Her name was Rachel. 
We had no phone number to contact her, any way of, of communication with her. We were merely to see her in the lobby, and she was going to take us back uh, to where we were going to stay. Well, our plane landed, sure enough. We got our luggage, and then we looked in the lobby for Rachel. And we looked, and we looked, and we waited, and we waited, and Rachel didn't show up. And then this man comes up with broken English, and he says, you know, I, I think that I'm supposed to take you. Uh, why don't you get into my car? And uh, we thought, well, we're looking for Rachel, you know. And he said, well, I don't know Rachel. I said, we're, we're waiting for Rachel. And he got on his phone. He started talking to, you know, someone else in his own language. And then he was telling us that the man on the other end of the phone, he knew Rachel. And he was telling him for us to get into his car. And he was going to take us where we're supposed to go. Well, pressure is starting to mount. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had that before? Your heart starts beating. You're in an uncomfortable situation. Well, that was us. We waited longer for Rachel. And no Rachel showed up. And so after some time passed, we decided, you know what? We, we're left with no option here. We got no plan B. We're going to get in this guy's car. And so we got in his car. And uh, we're sitting all in the back seat there as he's driving us. We're all uncomfortable and we're driving down this kind of a highway and things seemed okay. But then he pulled off, you know, off the highway into these side roads. And suddenly you knew that you were not in Kansas any longer. You know what I'm talking about? And the pressure just continues to rise. Well, then he went into this other neighborhood. And I'll tell you what, it was downright scary. And we all looked at each other and we knew that one or two things were going to happen. Either uh, the very best thing would be that we'd be robbed or we're going to die. I mean, seriously, we were panicked back there. And so I, in my wisdom, of course, I began taking the cash out of my wallet. And I'm starting to stuff it into my socks, you know, thinking, of course, that, you know, robbers would never think to look there, right? And so I'm stuffing my cash in my socks. We're preparing for the moment. And then he, he pulls in this neighborhood, pulls up to this building. It's in the darkness now. This is late at night. He pulls up to the building. We all thought, okay, this is the moment. It's all going to happen right now. And these people start walking out in the darkness surrounding the car. We get out of the car and we stand up. And who do we see? Rachel. And the pressure. You ever had that before? High pressure situation. The pressure keeps mounting. Well, that was the case for the church in Philippi. You know, they were excited about Christ. They were excited about Jesus. But the culture they lived in clearly wasn't. And in the face of mounting pressure, Paul didn't want them to walk down a wrong road. He didn't want them to, you know, become divided. And so he begins talking about the very matter that is most at risk in this budding community, a word called unity. Because you see, when pressure is on the rise, it's very easy for every person to embrace and every man for himself kind of mentality. And that's not what Paul wanted. And so in order to assure that uh, they would experience unity, he started to talk to them about Christ's humility. You see, because here's the deal. If you and I truly embrace Christ's humility in our lives, the natural result will be unity. Because we'll have no other choice but to put the other person before ourselves. And that leads to unity every single time. So Paul begins to write these words. Take a look, chapter 2. Verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then 
So if, 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 then. You've seen this kind of if-then relationship before, right? For example, you know, if you're trying to get to work on time on Monday morning and you're, and you're in the traffic on the highway and you're not moving, well then, because you're going to be late, you start to get pretty irritated. But if, while you're stuck in traffic on the highway, your car runs out of gas and you've got to push your car over to the side of the road, well then, you're going to get downright angry. And if, in your attempts to flag someone down to help you, nobody stops, and you're left to you know, sweat there in the sun under all the pressure you're under, well, then you're liable to do things you've never seen before. If this happens, well, then this is going to happen, or it should happen. And this is what Paul is talking about. He begins describing, though, a very different kind of if-then relationship. Let's take a look at this. Because he begins describing it one after the other. Take a look at this first statement. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. The reality is, whether we want to admit it or not, we all need to be encouraged. In the midst of our weaknesses, our limitations, our insecurities, we all kind of doubt ourselves. We doubt ourselves. We wonder sometimes if we have what it takes to truly be successful. And the one thing we're really afraid of is that we're going to fail in front of others. And the good news is this, that Christ encourages us because he loves us despite our failures. In fact, he'll take our failures. He'll use them to make us stronger. He'll use them to impact others in our lives. In the face of that kind of encouragement, we can succeed. And so if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, which we do, if any comfort from his love. Well, Christ loves us, of course, despite us. Christ loves you no matter what you've done, no matter what you did this morning, what you might do this afternoon. He loves us despite us. And because he loves us so much, we can risk loving others. Paul writes in another letter, he says this, that we loved you so much that we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. So he says, this kind of love that Christ has given to us, it's more than just words. It's the very laying down of our lives. And so if we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, which we do, if any comfort from his love, which we do, if any common sharing in the spirit, he writes. Now this sharing he's talking about has much more in mind than, you know, you giving a little of yourself to me and me giving a little of myself to you. No, the sharing he's talking about is the Greek word koinonia. We talked about this word before. The idea that we give to each other everything that we have. We love each other at a very intimate relationship. We lay it on the line for each other. And this is what Christ has done for us. So if you have an encouragement from being united with Christ, which we do, if any comfort from his love, which we do, if any common sharing in the spirit, which we do, if any tenderness and compassion. I like how the King James Version states because they actually got it right. They wrote, if any bowels and mercies. If any bowels and mercies. That's in your King James Version. In fact, in the first century, a person's bowels were regarded as the place of extreme passions, extreme devotion, love, and kindness at its deepest level. And since we have been recipients of Christ's extreme passion and love, friends, we're not to hold anything back when it comes to others. And so if we have been recipients of all these wonderful things from Christ, which we have been, 
Well, then Paul tells us, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And so the outcome of encouragement, of comfort, of love, of compassion in the body of Christ is a focused unity, a unity of mind, of love, and of purpose. In fact, Paul paints a vivid picture here of you and I being so focused by our mutual love that we place we before me every single time. We before me every single time. And we do this, Paul's saying, because we operate with one mind, not independent minds rushing around, seeking our own advantage, whatever we're about. No, we live with one mind. And how does this one mind manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself when we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, selfish ambition is a strong desire to achieve something that mostly benefits me, right? And vain conceit is excessive pride in myself while I'm accomplishing something that benefits myself, right? You put it together and you get a strong desire to achieve something my own way that benefits no one else but me. And if in my pursuit of this thing that I'm going to give to myself that benefits myself, if there's any roadblocks that get in my way, well, then I'm going to end up looking or sounding something like this, right? Where's my pacifier? Because I want what I want. And this is the culture that we live in. You recognize it? You see, what Paul is commanding here is so counterculture, so counterintuitive, so counter me. Matt Chandler writes, he says, if selfish ambition is thinking, I've got to beat them. Conceit is like being a sore loser when you don't. Conceit is about appearances, about saving face. In the end, selfish ambition and vain conceit come from the idolatrous belief that we're due more than we have received and that we're worthy of more honor than we're getting. But that is the culture we live in. Everyone seems to think that they're due more than what they're getting. That's why we're chasing after more. And in the face of this kind of culture, then why would I want to live in such a selfless way? Why would I want to place you over me every single time? It's downright strange. It's, it's anti-human. But Paul says it can be done when you're transformed by humility. That's why Paul continues to write, Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so when you and I are transformed by humility, it means that we're going to naturally put ourselves in second position. Every time. Every time. Now, after I went to Palestine, I was able to go back to Israel in the Middle East uh, several times over the past many years. And in my travels there, I, there's one spot that I always go to, that I always visit, that, that lies right next to, you know, the, the gravesite of Oscar Schindler. You've probably heard of him because of this movie, Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler, of course, was a very successful business person making a lot of money, profiting off of the war. And then he realized what he was contributing to, to the extermination of the Jewish people. And so over time, Oscar Schindler began to embrace this mindset that we matter more than me. And he started to make some sacrifices. 
He started to give up some of his money he was making in order to save one Jewish life and then another and then another. The end of the war came and those that he had saved gathered around him to thank him. Take a look at how this unfolds. Hebrew from the Talmud that says whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Schindler, he sacrificed a great deal in order to save others. He gave up what was rightfully his in many ways. And yet in that moment, with everyone gathered around him, he realized he hadn't given all. He had sacrificed partially, but he didn't lay it all on the line. In his mind, he fell short. The reality is we're all going to fall short if our minds are not focused properly 
And that's why when Paul says we're to have the same mind, it's important to understand what mind is he talking about because we can have the same mind. Much of our culture has the same mind, which means we put ourselves first every time. You can have the same mind and be wrong. You can have the same mind and be off course. And that's why Paul writes this in verse 5, in your relationships with other, with another, have the same mindset as whom? Christ Jesus. And that's the game changer. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You see, a mindset is an established set of attitudes that predetermines my response. An established set of attitudes that predetermines my response. You've got a mindset. I've got a mindset. So whatever mindset we hold up here predetermines how we're going to treat other people out here. And that's the problem because left to ourselves, left to our own mindsets, we're going to act selfishly, arrogantly, pridefully. As one pastor wrote, he says, what I think determines how I feel and how I feel determines how I act. And so one's actions then are a natural outflow of our mindset. And that's why Paul's trying to get us to understand that we've got to exchange our mindset for his. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be transformed by humility and have the mind of Christ? Well, Paul knew he would ask. And so he pointed us to Jesus and he said, Who, being the very nature of God, did not find equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? First lesson here, Christ's humility refuses to take advantage. His humility refuses to take advantage of those things that are rightfully his. He refuses to take advantage of. Another man is quoted as saying this. He says, I've never been more sure of anything in my life. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. His name was John Pedley. Once known as a womanizer and a man who was very successful. He was worth millions upon millions of dollars. His life was radically changed in a car accident that left him on the brink of death. It took him a long period of time to recover. And over that period of time, he began learning about Jesus. And eventually, he became a Christian. That's why in 2010, he had no other choice in his mind but to sell everything that he had. He gave away every single penny in order to move to Uganda, live in a mud hut, and serve the orphanage, orphans that were there. I mean, he could have used everything that he had to his full advantage. And yet he used what he had to the advantage of others. What does it look like for you? What does it look like for me to take that next step? The things that we want to hold on to, to say, you know what? They're not mine. They're yours. My time, my stuff, my money. What does it look like to take the next step in our lives? Because if we don't pursue the mind of Christ, we're liable to act to our own advantage. We're going to put ourselves first every single time. This is why Paul wrote, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You see, Christ's humility seeks downward mobility. Christ's humility seeks downward mobility. You see, even though he was God, Jesus did not get, let, let his status get in the way. In fact, there's an old gospel song that says that he came down to our level because we couldn't get up to his. The Old Testament prophet wrote before Jesus was born, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God giving up his status in order to be with 
us. And when Jesus grew up and began his ministry, he confirmed the words of Isaiah when he said this. He said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And that's an I am statement that says, I am God. I'm God. And although Jesus is God, he exchanged his throne for a feeding trough, his power for weakness, his royal robe for a dirty towel. And why? Out of his love for you and for me. So let me ask you, out of your love for another, when have you sought downward mobility? When have you truly been their servant? When Carol and I were living in Holland, Michigan, back when the kids were younger, as she was driving home on a Saturday night, it was late, and she was in her van, and she's driving home, and she saw this woman walking by herself on the side of the road, knowing that it wasn't safe to walk there, but still wondering even if something was wrong with her, she stopped her car to see if she could help her in any way. She immediately realized that she could, and so she took her in her van and drove her to our home. Now, I remember standing there in the kitchen when Carol walked in and introduced me to this woman. This woman who couldn't speak. She couldn't say a word. She was like dazed. Her hair was a mess. It was all over the place. And the dress that she wore was covered with blood. Blood all over it. And knowing Carol's heart, of course, what she wanted for me to say was, you know what, let's, let's take her in for the night. Let's give her a room so she can sleep and be safe. That's what she wanted. But, of course, that's where my, you know, all the sense that I have up here started to work, right? All the things and the rationale. And I said, you know what? I, in my mind, I thought, I mean, did she kill somebody? I mean, what, what's going on here? I mean, we got blood all over her. She can't talk. I mean, what's going on? And so I said to Carol, you know, I said, the thing you, you have to do, and it wasn't for me to do, it was for her to do, was for her to take this woman back, you know, to the mission. I said, because the mission, they're, you know, they're equipped to deal with people, you know, in situations like her. Well, Carol was hurt by my response, but she put the woman back in the van, drove her to the mission. That was Saturday night. Then the next day, of course, is Sunday, and I was leading in worship that morning, the two services. But afterwards, it was my parents' anniversary. They were coming to Holland. We're going to this beautiful restaurant, the most expensive restaurant in Holland. It was right on the water. It was that restaurant that you've been to before where everyone's dressed to the nines, that one. And so I led the first service, and then the second service, I noticed Carol coming in the back. And who did she have with her? But that woman. She brought her to church with her. And after the service was over, they left, and I thought, well, okay, she's bringing her back. I got in the car. I headed over to the restaurant, and I saw my parents there, my brother there. We waited for a while. Carol didn't show up. So we walked in. We took our seats there. We're sitting around this table in this incredible place. And after a few minutes, my mom says, oh, there's Carol. And in walks Carol with that woman. And I'll tell you what, you ever ever seen one of those pictures where you're supposed to pick out the one thing that doesn't fit? That was her. She still couldn't talk, couldn't say anything, looked a mess. And she sat down at our table, and my parents were completely surprised. I was completely surprised. Because you know what? I mean, following Christ, I mean, it's supposed to change us kind of, right? It's supposed to help us think differently. We're supposed to have a nice positive thought for the day, you know? It's supposed to change us sort of, but it's not supposed to radically change our lives. 
We're not supposed to operate like him, right? We're just supposed to take a little step. And what Carol did that day had Jesus written all over it. And yet we couldn't recognize it because it didn't make sense. This is my parents' anniversary after all. And yet in the mind of Carol, she saw someone in need. And she thought, you know what? We can give her the best dinner she's probably ever eaten in her life. That's what she saw. What do you see? When you look at people around you, what do you see? You see opportunities? You see opportunities to seek downward mobility? To be a servant? Because this is what Paul calls us to be. To lay it all on the line. That kind of a servanthood. He writes in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ's humility avoids self-preservation. It avoids self-preservation. Here Paul tells us exactly how bad things got. I mean, we were so lost in our mess of sin that the God of the universe comes down to our level, takes on human form, human flesh, and then allows his flesh to be ripped and torn apart so that you and I could know life. The Old Testament prophet stated it this way, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Some have said, and you might have heard them before, that the day that Christ was nailed to the cross, we, his creation, killed our creator. But in reality, none of us really had that much power over him. No, Christ died on the cross, submitted himself to his father, so that one day you and I could have the mind of Christ. The same mind that would lead us to die to ourselves. The same mind that would prepare us to die for another if needed. And that kind of humility, when we're transformed by that kind of humility, it leads to greatness in life. This is why Paul writes to Jesus saying, Because of that humility, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. In fact, there's a day coming when every single person on the planet will stand before Jesus, will stand before God, and the moment they hear the name of Jesus proclaimed, they will have but one response. Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, although Christ ultimately knew the victory was his, he was more motivated by the fact that one day the victory would be ours in and through him. This is why the writer of Hebrews says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus faced the ridicule, all the torment, all the shame because of the joy set before him. And where was his joy focused and placed? His joy was placed in the future set before him when he would embrace victory over death, hell, and the grave. His joy was placed in the future set before him when we, his creation, could experience God's forgiveness and be called his sons and his daughters. His joy was placed in the future set before him when we, his creation, would be called to heaven one day where we will worship around his throne forever. All because of Christ's humility. Have you been transformed by it? 
Have you been transformed by Christ's humility? See, Paul is trying to get us to understand this, that if I am transformed by Christ's humility, then I'll serve sacrificially and seek not my supremacy, but yours, and yours, and yours, and yours. So as we think about being transformed by Christ's humility, I think it's important for us to remember him today, and that's how we're going to end our service time together. You see, Oscar Schindler, he was overcome with guilt because he laid it partially on the line. Jesus, he paid it all. He paid it all. You might have heard that old hymn that says, you know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sing it with me. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We're going to close our service by remembering that Jesus paid it all. And so with those who are serving, will you come forward? And here's, here's my challenge to you. As the bread and the wine are passed out, as you hold those elements in your hand, thank him for paying it all for you. Thank him for being your servant. And then in that moment, I want you to think about who you can serve this week. He laid it all on the line for you. Who can you lay it all on the line for this week? What will that look like? Say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for serving me. And now give me the strength and the humility to serve others. That's how we remember him. So let's pass the elements out. Hold them in your hands. And then we'll all take together in just a few moments.